Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org lost. Donald Trump is facing 91 criminal counts in four different criminal cases. Right now, prosecutors in all four of those cases are fighting to get to trial before Election Day. But so far... Only one of those trials is on track to actually make it. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is preparing to go to trial this month in the case over Trump's hush money payments to an adult film actress. While that case moves forward, the others, not so much. The federal elections case brought by special counsel Jack Smith suffered a huge setback this week when the Supreme Court stepped in and delayed the start date of that trial potentially pushing it back until after the November election, which leaves two other trials. And today we got significant updates in both of those cases. Today in Florida, for the first time ever, both Donald Trump and Jack Smith were in public court together for the case over Trump's handling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Among other things, they were there to discuss when Trump's trial in that case would begin. The special counsel's team requested that the trial begin July 8th, giving them sufficient time to complete the trial before the election. Trump's team begrudgingly suggested the trial could begin August 12th, which prosecutors were quick to pounce on, saying, oh, one thing the parties agree on is that this case can be tried this summer. Trump's lawyers were very quick to push back on that and made quite clear that they would really much prefer this case be tried next February as in the month of never. Trump's defense made clear that while they might accept an August date, they really do not want this trial to go forward before Election Day. Now, Judge Aileen Cannon did not make a decision about when she would start the trial, but she did ask one question that raised quite a few eyebrows in the room. You may recall that the Department of Justice has a special rule that says prosecutors cannot bring charges against a political candidate 60 days before an election. That's the so-called 60-day rule. And today, Judge Cannon asked Jack Smith's team whether or not that rule applied here. Smith's team said it did not. They said the rule is only about when prosecutors are allowed to bring charges and that once charges have been brought, there is no restriction as to when a trial can take place. The notable thing here may be that Judge Cannon is even asking the question in the first place. Does this mean she is considering bringing this case to trial before Election Day? Or is she looking for an excuse, any excuse, to push the trial further into the future? Joining me now is Devlin Barrett, national security reporter for The Washington Post, who is in Judge Cannon's courtroom today. Devlin, thank you. You look like you're just out of court in the white background. I almost will we'll move on. Um, Devlin, what how, what what did you make of Judge Cannon's reaction to the Department of Justice assurance that the 60 day rule did not apply here, in effect, suggesting to her that it's fine to have an election, uh, a trial close to an election? It's funny because that was the closest she really came to addressing the elephant in the room, which is the defense demands that this trial not take place before the election. Uh, you know, I think what you saw over and over in this hearing today 
was that Trump lawyers tried to get her to engage on the question of before or after uh, the election. And the, really the only time she did was in this sort of sidestepping way involving the DOJ uh, policy. And, and really, the, the, the answer the DOJ gave was absolutely correct, which is that that just doesn't apply in this instance. A trial schedule is set by a judge, not the Justice Department. So it doesn't really involve DOJ policies, that, that 60-day rule. So I think what was telling to me was the degree to which the two parties actually aren't that far apart, if you just think about the July versus August difference. The challenge, though, that's really clear is because Trump is going to go on trial in New York in the spring, they have a lot of work to do in the classified documents case if they're going to make that happen. And it's going to be difficult to get all of this done. That doesn't mean it's impossible. That doesn't mean they shouldn't. But it is going to be a very busy spring and summer for everybody involved in this. And it's going to be technically complicated. One of the things the prosecutor suggested was that in the middle of a one week of the, the New York trial, everyone fly down to Florida, have a hearing on, a, on an off day, and then fly back to New York to resume the trial in New York. It's not clear that that's what's going to happen, but that's the kind of logistical tricks they're going to have to do to pull this off. Did you get a sense that she was at all receptive to the defense or Trump's defense team argument that he's trying to use the presidential immunity defense in the Mar-a-Lago case, never minding that he wasn't actually president when the documents were found in his beach getaway? Having said that, that that issue, presidential immunity, is working its way through the Supreme Court. And Trump's team has effectively said, hey, don't do anything in, in this case either until we resolve the presidential immunity question. Did she seem receptive to that argument? You know, it only came up in passing the immunity issue in this hearing, and it re- they really no one really tried to get her to engage on that question. It did, it did, however, come up in a different way, which I thought was interesting and smart on the part of the prosecutors, because at one point the prosecutor said to the judge, look, if you agree with the defense that this trial should begin, let's say, in August or maybe late August or September, that may be a trick on the part of the defense team to get a trial date so that if and when Trump loses the immunity argument for the Supreme Court, your trial date ends up blocking the D.C. case over the January 6th and the 2020 election, ends up essentially acting as a block to that trial going forward. And this may all just be a form of gamesmanship to to prevent any of these trials from happening. Now, the Trump defense lawyers denied that, but I think it's fair to question how all of these things are going to relate to each other. Yeah, well, and there is some reporting that that is Trump's strategy to literally ice out Judge uh, Chutkin in the federal election interference case. I do want to note that some part of the deliberations today were taken up with Jack Smith's team suggesting that Judge Cannon reverse herself on an order to reveal the names of witnesses um, that the government would very much like to keep redacted. There was some speculation that Jack Smith fighting Cannon on this was part of a broader effort to maybe seek to get her taken off the case. There's been a lot of controversy over her rulings throughout this case. There's been no shortage of frustration, at least on the outside, and I can certainly imagine on the inside of the DOJ. Do you think that is still something that they would even be aiming for, given what's happening in the rest of the sort of trial landscape? That's really not my sense of how this is going so far. If you look at the totality of their arguments, the totality of the prosecution position on this issue and in the case in general, 
they do not look to me to be aiming for that kind of play. Uh, asking asking for a different judge is a pretty intense move, particular for a government lawyer. And that doesn't seem where they're headed on this. I, I would be a little surprised if, based on what I saw today, that's where any of this lands. Remember, too, just earlier this week, Judge Cannon ruled against Trump on, a, on, a, on an issue. So I, I don't think there is a great um, factual argument for the prosecutors to even make if they wanted to. And it's it's kind of pulling a pulling a parachute forward before you've left the plane to do that at this stage of, of the of the case. All right. We're going to pause it right there, Devin. Please hang for a moment because I want to talk about the other Trump case that was in court today. As Trump and Jack Smith were in that same Florida courtroom today, the fate of Trump's other trial was being hashed out 600 miles north in Atlanta, Georgia. For weeks, we have been watching what essentially amounts to a sideshow in Fulton County, where Trump's co-defendants are trying to get D.A. Fonnie Willis thrown off of the Georgia election conspiracy case because of a relationship she had with one of the prosecutors on her team. Now, today we got what was effectively closing arguments in the case of Trump's cronies versus Fonnie Willis's love life. Trump's co-conspirators claimed that Fonnie Willis hired Nathan Wade, an outside lawyer with whom she was having a romantic relationship, in order to profit off the case against Trump. Their arguments as to how Willis is profiting off of the case are admittedly very thin. But D.A. Willis has made clear that she and Wade did engage in a romantic relationship, and the defense lawyers have been able to raise questions about whether or not Ms. Willis was truthful about when her relationship with Mr. Wade began. So now the focus of this thing has shifted. It started off as a question of whether Ms. Willis benefited financially, but has sort of evolved into a question of whether or not there is the appearance of impropriety in her relationship with Nathan Wade. Trump's co-defendants are effectively arguing that Even if Fonnie Willis didn't create some elaborate scheme to profit from this trial, the appearance of dishonesty about her personal life should be enough to kick her off this case. All you have to do is make a finding of fact that you have genuine, legitimate concerns about their credibility. And if they don't tell the truth under oath or there's a significant concern about their credibility, then they're violating their ethical rules. And as anyone will tell you, as Your Honor already knew from when you were a prosecutor, prosecutors are held to a higher standard. I want to bring into this conversation Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tamar, thanks for joining me tonight. Um, It feels on the outside like the defense or the the defendants in this are trying to kind of move the goalposts in terms of the disqualifying behavior. And I wonder whether it seems like Judge McAfee is buying it. Well, you're right, Alex, in that the debate now is is a question of whether the judge, what, what standard he wants to take. Does he see this as a potential actual conflict of interest or perhaps the appearance of a conflict of interest? And this is something that the judge himself has stated, which I think the defendants kind of took as an opening to really focus on in their closing statements today. Um, You mentioned initially how this complaint had to do with um, whether the DA was financially benefiting inappropriately off this case. I would argue that a lot of the focus has shifted toward whether DA Fonnie Willis or whether Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade might have perjured themselves on the stand. the DA and her team have vehemently denied this. They say that they've been telling the truth the entire time, but defense counsel is trying to catch them in a lie and arguing that that in and of itself is enough to remove them. Does, um, does, 
Sorry, does Judge McAfee, I mean, he didn't allow new evidence in today, right? This was sort of like closing arguments, if you will. Did he seem interested and open to the idea that the thing that should disqualify Fonnie Willis is lying about the timeline of her relationship? I think that's something he was stress testing with the lawyers on the stand today, trying to figure out, okay, what's the law on this issue? Um, What's out there that could lead me to rule one way or another? And he really has not given a great sense about where his head is at, which is a bit unusual for him. He tends to at least give us a hint about what he's thinking. But he mentioned wanting to take the time to really get this right over the next two two or so weeks before making a determination. Um, And he could look back to a July 2022 ruling that his colleague, Judge Robert McBurney, issued uh, earlier on in this case, having to do with uh, the man who became the lieutenant governor of Georgia. This was Burt Jones. He was serving as a Trump elector. He ended up disqualifying D.A. Willis from investigating him further because she had held a fundraiser for the man who'd go on to become his Democratic opponent. Um, Some of the defense counsel today was pointing toward that ruling to show, well, if that was enough to disqualify the Fulton D.A.'s office there, that should be more than enough to disqualify the Fulton DA's office here. Is there any middle ground, Tamar? I mean, we're talking about disqualifying her, which would disqualify her whole office, which would mean effectively that this case would be in no man's land for some certain amount of time. Is, is there anything the judge has floated as a potential um, punishment that is not as severe as effectively deadening this case? The judge himself has not floated anything. He's been very tight-lipped about what he might do here. But one option um, could be to to maybe advise that the DA let Nathan Wade go, um, have him step aside so that she can remain on this case. Um, That would be a bit unusual, but perhaps that is some sort of middle ground in all of this. But you're right, Alex, removing the entire Fulton DA's office um, could lead to a lot of disarray on this case. potentially freezing it, or even in the eyes of some of the DA's allies, enough to kill it. Um, So we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, Prosecutors have argued that judges in general are very hesitant to want to remove prosecutors from cases like this, and they argued it'd be a pretty dangerous standard to start setting. Devlin, let me go back to you, and I want to ask you both this since you were literally in the courtrooms. Devlin, you know, this has been a really rough week for people who are eager to see Donald Trump stand trial and be held accountable for his actions particularly for Jack Smith. Let's start there. And I wonder if there was anything revealing or anything you can tell us about the sort of mood in the courtroom, as it looks like a lot of these cases are sort of falling by the wayside, potentially. I'll say the mood was interesting because in a lot of the recent courtrooms where I've I've been with Donald Trump, he's exuded a a sort of anger. So I'm thinking particularly the E. Jean Carroll case in New York. This Today, in this courtroom in Florida, he was pretty chipper. At one point, he was joking with his lawyers. I think he feels uh, good about where he is right now, at least in that day, in that moment. And I think, look, the the anxiety, the concern, the uncertainty about the schedule, I think it's understandable for people to have concerns given the stakes and all this. I will say the court system is not a, 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 a great linear and predictable animal. It never has been, and it's not being that for Donald Trump either. Um, and that's part of the uncertainty. And I think people are going to have to sort of roll with the punches a little bit as far as how uncertain the court system can be on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. Yeah, that's good advice uh, for all of us watching and all of us following along in our democracy. Devlin Barrett and Tamar Halliman, got to leave it there. Thank you guys both for your time and great reporting.
We have a lot to get to tonight, including the increasing fallout for Republican politicians forced to scramble to protect access to IVF while also protecting so-called personhood. Plus, President Biden announces new humanitarian aid for Gaza while trying to keep outraged young and Arab American voters in his corner. Senator Bernie Sanders joins me right here in New York City to talk about the road ahead for Democrats. That's next. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. No excuses, because the truth is, aid flowing to Gaza is nowhere nearly enough. Now, it's nowhere nearly enough. Innocent lives are on the line and trying to pull out every stop we can. President Biden earlier today announced that the United States will airdrop food and aid supplies into Gaza, as U.N. officials say that a quarter of the population, that is over 500,000 people, are one step away from famine. President Biden's announcement comes one day after Israeli forces are accused of opening fire on a crowd of Palestinians waiting for aid in Gaza City. The Israeli military denies firing on people seeking aid and says many of the dead were killed by stampeding crowds. At least 100 people were killed in that incident, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry, although the Israeli military disputes that number. The incident has nonetheless drawn international condemnation against a backdrop of more than 30,000 people killed in Gaza since the war began, again, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. This war is a source of domestic concern as well. This week, during Michigan's presidential primary, young people and Arab-American voters made clear their dissatisfaction with this White House position on Israel and Gaza, as more than 100,000 voted uncommitted in the Democratic primary. Joining me now is Senator Bernie Sanders. He is also the author of the New York Times bestselling book, It Is Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, which is out now in paperback. Senator Sanders, it's great. It's a pleasure to have you in New York City. Um, I know that you have been openly advocated for this White House to do something immediate to help the people of Gaza, food and aid. They have apparently done that. Can you talk a little bit about how receptive the White House and the administration have been to outside pressure? Well, I think, first of all, this is something, Alex, they've been thinking about for a while, because what they see, what you see, what I see, is almost an unprecedented humanitarian disaster. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of children facing starvation. We're talking about Israeli bombs of making it impossible for humanitarian aid to get to places that is needed, uh, that the borders are being uh, blockaded uh, and, and aid is unable to get through. So I think what the president is doing is an important step forward, but we need to do more. 
we need to tell Netanyahu and his right-wing government that they're going to have to open those borders. The United States of America, and I think the rest of the, industri- the rest of the world, is not going to allow hundreds of thousands of kids to starve to death. So we need a new approach to Israel for many, many years. We have given them a lot of money. Recently, there was a vote. I voted against it to give them another $14 billion. My view, not another nickel for Netanyahu's government uh, if he's going to continue this wholesale slaughter of the Palestinian people. That's the thing I can't really reconcile, right? We're airdropping aid at the same time as the U.S. is sending weapons of war over to Israel. I mean, how do you recognize how do you reconcile that? Is the right hand not talking to the left hand? You can't reconcile it. It's totally absurd. And on top of that, look, the airdrops are very important, but that is not as important as opening up the borders because you're going to need hundreds and hundreds of trucks every single day. And our message to Netanyahu, you know what? You're not going to get another nickel unless you open those borders and prevent the starvation, which is imminent. You say it's your message to Netanyahu, but I wonder if it's not also the message to President Biden, right? right? I mean, I I have to read this passage because I think, you know, we don't cover Gaza every day. It is an ongoing, appalling situation. And this is what's happening for people who have tuned this out for domestic politics, which, of course, are important as well. But listen to this. It was hunger that drove Ibrahim al-Rifi from his house in Gaza at two in the morning on Thursday. It had been months since he could find bread for his wife and daughters in war-ravaged northern Gaza. Flour sold for close to $1,000 a bag. And even the animal feed many had turned to was running out. Some people are eating grass, according to the United Nations. It is an unprecedented disaster, Alex. I mean, it makes my stomach turn when you think about it. And by the way, there are children right now who are suffering from severe malnutrition who will suffer permanent damage. If all the food in the world came in tomorrow, they have already been permanently damaged. So the word has got to go out that we must demand a total change in what Netanyahu is doing. We've got to put an end to this bloody war right now. Netanyahu and the Israeli government have got to start supporting the concept of a two-state solution so that maybe, maybe there will finally be peace in that region. I, I got to I mean, it seems like political pressure might be one thing to get the administration to take a more aggressive posture vis-a-vis Netanyahu. And I wonder what you made of the results from the Michigan primary earlier this week. Over 100,000 people voting uncommitted as an effective protest vote against this administration. Well, policy. it tells me and I think it tells the White House that there are large numbers of young people, large numbers of minority people, large numbers of Americans who are sick and tired of the slaughter of the Palestinian people. And again, this is not some distant thing. This is with our tax dollars. Those guns and the planes largely or significantly are paid for by U.S. tax dollars. So the word is, again, I mean, we cannot continue to support this right-wing extremist government. No more money. We must demand a fundamental change of policy. Do you think that this could be an issue that could decide the 2020, if not entirely, you think this could be a deciding factor in the election? Well, I mean, people have got to know that, you know, Trump is, you know, even more pro-Israel than than Biden has been. But I think what you're going to see is a lot of young people, Mm -hmm. uh, people of color, uh, people of Arab descent saying, you know what, Uh, I don't like Trump, 
but I just I'm not going to come out in the vote. So it could be decisive in that in that sense. There's some data that The Washington Post went through. It's exit polling data comparing Trump's support in 2024 versus his support in 2016 from these early primary states. And it looks like he's running the same this year as he did with Republican women in 2016. He's gotten a higher share of conservative voters and older voters. He has done slightly worse among young voters. So it seems if you're a Democratic strategist, you're someone running for president, which you have done before, and you know this, you know the landscape well, young voters are going to be really important for this Democratic president who's seeking to return to office for another four years. Do you have, I mean, is there a strategy you think, President, setting aside the the immediate calls that you have articulated vis-a-vis Prime Minister Netanyahu, is there a strategy that President Biden should be pursuing outside of that? There is. Look, I think President Biden, President Biden has established a good record over the last four years. There's a lot that he has to be proud of. You know, we took this country under his leadership out of the pandemic and the economic downturn from the pandemic a lot faster than people thought. We have started to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure. We're putting more money into transforming our energy system and dealing with climate change. He has been a strong supporter of women's right to control their own bodies, et cetera, et cetera. He has a good record. But I think what he's got to talk to the American people about is an understanding that despite our accomplishments over the last three and a half years, ordinary Americans have been hurting for decades. We don't talk about it. Real inflation accounted for wages today, Alex, are lower than they were 50 years ago. We're seeing massive levels of inequality. The very, very rich are getting richer. Sixty percent of our people continue to live paycheck to paycheck. We have a health care system, which is dysfunctional, a child care system, which is collapsing. Meanwhile, the people on top doing phenomenally well. Corporate profits are soaring. I think the president has been good. He's been out on a picket line yeah. striking workers for the first time in American history. I applaud him for that. He's got to get up there and say, look, I give me a second term. Give me real Democratic control over the House and the Senate. You know what? We're going to take on the ruling class of this country. We're going to take on greedy corporations. And we're going to provide an economy that works for working people, not just the 1%. I think if he gets that message out, he could win this election. You know, the thing they're hung up on is his age, but nobody ever nobody ever brought up your age. Nobody ever brings up your age. What's the secret? Well, I think we make a mistake. Age is one factor, Alex. But what's more important is what somebody does, what somebody stands for. Yeah. But That's, I mean, you said he, I guess I just I, it's, it's a very fungible concept, this idea of too right. old. It's, you're impermeable. <laughs> you can't touch Bernie Sanders. On. We're going to continue this conversation. After a quick break, please stay with me. Um, We're going to talk about Republican governance in a MAGA world. (laughs) That's not an oxymoron. As Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell prepares to step away and House Republicans do whatever it is that they decided to do. And coming up later, the new threat to in vitro fertilization is a problem the GOP should have seen coming and one that they have absolutely no idea how to fix. Stay with us. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. 
Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. The yeas are 77, the nays are 13, and the bill is passed. That was the Senate last night kicking the can, if not down the road, then down the block. They passed a stopgap funding bill that President Biden signed this afternoon and which delays a partial government shutdown for a whopping total of seven days. After that, there is yet another deadline later in the month, after which even more of the government money, which after more of the government runs out of money. Back with me now is Senator Bernie Sanders. Senator, what's it like trying to govern with a party that's not actually interested in governance? It is very distressing. I'll give you an example of it. Uh, I think most Americans know that our health care system is in disarray. It's outrageously expensive. We don't have enough doctors and nurses. People can't get an appointment, et cetera, et cetera. We tried. We really did on the committee. I'm chairman of the Health Education Labor Committee. We tried to do something big. We even had some Republican support. We tried to grow the number of doctors and nurses and mental health providers, tried to expand primary health care so people in all over the country could actually go to a doctor when they needed to rather end up in a hospital at yep. 10 times the cost. Shut down. Total opposition from Republicans, most Republicans, not all, despite the fact this would end up saving money by keeping people out of hospital. Bottom line is, you're right. Uh, they don't believe in the concept of government. At the end of the day, they'd like to see the corporate world take over even more of the functions of society. And that's the bottom line. Well, and that seems generous that, that they want anybody to take over the functions of society, because honestly, it feels like social Darwinism to a certain no, degree. No, no, right? They want to privatize Social Security, yeah. want to privatize Medicare, privatize the Veterans Administration, privatize public education, the post office. That is their ultimate goal. They're not happy that three people are more wealth than the bottom half of American society. Apparently, that's too fair. They want to make it even more unequal. There's been a lot of hagiography hey around the retirement of Mitch McConnell from Senate leadership. And I wonder, as someone who works with the, the man and has seen of late um, his position on important matters, what you think of his departure and what the implications are for the Republican Party? I think it's going to be he is an old time Republican mm-hmm. and he is, to his credit, spoken up against Trump now and then. Um, that, but, that's that alone feels like right. But quite, that's quite too generous. liberal. Yeah, right. And um, I think he will be replaced by somebody further to the right, somebody who will be close, more closely attached to Trump. Do you I mean, I, I have to say on a week like this where we're talking about just uh, like absolutely appalling conditions in Gaza, we're looking at the funeral of Alexei Navalny. We're looking at, you know, the seeming evaporation of holding Trump uh, criminally accountable for his actions, you know, in addition to the rest of the landscape. You forgot about climate change. Well, I mean, that's just an ongoing trauma that we're living through, right? Do you, does this moment, do you, do you have a, 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 a sort of core of optimism in a moment like this? Or how do you look at the broader sort of American and global landscape? Look, I have had the privilege, as you mentioned, of running for president, which means that I've been to every state in this country. I've talked to many, many thousands of people, young people, old people, working class people. 
And what I want to tell you is the people are far, far, far more decent than the government they have that's representing them. Almost everybody out there says, you know what? Healthcare should be a human right. Mm -hmm. Everybody out there says, hey, we got to ask the billionaires to start paying their fair share of taxes. People all over the world are not stupid. They see climate change taking place in front of their eyes. We have got to deal with it. We need to improve education. We need to change our national priorities, not spend $900 billion on the military, et cetera, et cetera. So where I am optimistic, having talked to zillions of people, is people want to make this country a lot more humane society uh, and move away from the kind of oligarchic society that we have today. Okay, we're going to leave it on that optimistic note of uplift from (laughs) Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, whose best-selling book, It Is Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, is out now in paperback. You can read it and be angry and then be hopeful about the change you may enact yourself. Senator, it's great to see you. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you, Alex. Still ahead this evening, while the vast majority of Americans are waiting for their lawmakers to do something to protect IVF access after the Alabama Supreme Court decided embryos are people, Republicans in D.C. have done approximately nothing. Meanwhile, Republicans in Alabama are quoting scripture and vanilla ice. I'll explain next. Is it not possible to do IVF in a pro-life way that treats embryos as children because they are? Does not wisdom cry unto us that if we have found a potential silent holocaust of our children that we should pause, just stop? I quoted Jack Reacher, I'll quote Vanilla Ice. Stop, collaborate, and listen. That was Alabama State Representative Ernie Yarbrough, a Republican, yesterday debating new legislation to protect in vitro fertilization while quoting both the Bible and vanilla ice. If it wasn't already clear, it's sort of a mess down in Alabama. And yet, somehow this week, Alabama's Republican-controlled legislature managed to pass something after the state Supreme Court ruled two weeks ago that frozen embryos are children and effectively ended access to fertility treatments. The new legislation, passed yesterday, aims to grant civil and criminal immunity to anyone providing IVF services, meaning doctors can't be sued if they give fertility treatments. But the legislation fails to address the fundamental question here. How does the state of Alabama define a child? Is an embryo created by IVF a person? And if you freeze an embryo, are you freezing a person? Meanwhile, at the U.S. Capitol, the cleanup effort is going even worse. Despite top Republicans in the country publicly pledging to support IVF after the Republican Senate campaign arm begged them to do so, earlier this week, Republican Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith blocked a measure that would have provided federal protection for IVF treatments. Cindy Hyde-Smith explained her position, saying, I support the ability for mothers and fathers to have total access to IVF and bringing new life into the world. I also believe human life should be protected. That sounds confusing. And maybe somewhat hypocritical, that's because it is. Republicans appear to want it both ways here. They want to give lip service to IVF protections, but they also don't want to do anything to protect IVF. In other words, they want what Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mesa suggested, a non-binding resolution expressing strong support for IVF. Joining me now is Erin Carmone, senior correspondent at New York Magazine and author of an upcoming book about the post-Dobbs era called unbearable being pregnant in America. That's an understatement. Erin, thank you so much for being here tonight. Um, 
The thing about hammering home this notion that life begins at conception, which Republicans have been doing, I don't know, for decades, Mm -hmm. is that eventually people start believing you. Forty (laughs) nine percent of Republicans think embryos are children. And Mm -hmm. here we are in a sort of situation that is wholly of Republican making. Is there a way out for them on this? Well, you know, the famous New Yorker cartoon of I never thought the leopards would eat my face. I keep thinking about that because, yes, there are some true believers like our Vanilla Ice fan friend. Ernie Arborough, who sincerely have thought through, maybe thought through the issues, and they really think that if you freeze a frozen, if you freeze an embryo, which itself can endanger its future, right? Routine processes of IVF could result in the destruction of a fetus, even though the intention, in theory, is to build a family. But most of them haven't really thought about it at all. Yeah. And IVF, as we know, is overwhelmingly more accessible to people who are well off, would like to become parents. Um, people maybe that people that lawmakers know, uh, they realize that this is political poison. And so they never thought that the leopard would eat their face in terms of the actual political uh, popularity of yeah. this. Staring them in the face. Now, you rightly call out the total incoherence in what they're saying. And I think part of that is to paper over the fact that they actually haven't fully worked out what their position is. The Heritage Foundation thinks that the Alabama state Supreme Court decision was awesome. Yeah. You know, Alabama has passed this completely, the the legislature has passed this completely incoherent thing that says that, like, for 15 months, nobody can be prosecuted. It doesn't even have a carve out for malpractice. Like, it really actually causes more problems than it solves. Um, But that is because they have not fully understood the implications of what they've said. But mind you, when Alabama was debating its abortion ban, there was a a legislator, Clyde Clyde Chambliss, who famously said, an embryo is not, it's not a baby because it's not in a woman, right. you know? So they, they have had time to try to say, well, if, I don't, if I can't control a woman directly, <laughs> then it doesn't There's count. There's not a uterus that I can, so like, I, I think police. for them, they, exactly. They have not fully thought this through, but their own personhood laws, people like Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, have supported laws that would severely restrict IVF. So rather than kind of have this debate out in the open where a ton of people who are very powerful in the conservative movement are being like, yeah, Alabama right. State Supreme Court, they're just trying to say, IVF, it's great. And when you look into the fine print, if you even got something like a straight answer, you might find out that they support um, really unsustainable, difficult, like ineffective, expensive practices in IVF that anybody who has been through the process will know is the same as making it completely illegal. Yeah, yeah. I, um, one of the people who's been caught in a, a bind of his own making, quite literally, is Donald Trump. This is um, Sean Hannity asking Donald Trump about his position on IVF. I believe it was yesterday. Let us take a listen. Then the issue of abortion. I think it played a very big part. They demagogued that issue yeah. in 2022, in the midterm. And I think it hurt Republicans. Uh-huh. You took a strong stand on IVF. Where are you on that? And what is your message to other candidates? And where are you on abortion? So I saw the IVF and a judge in Alabama made a very harsh decision. It was very, very tough. And I came out immediately and I said, we want to help women This is fertilization. We want that. We want people to help. We're on the side of women. And same thing on the abortion issue. It's like (laughs) you can see the wheels grinding in his head, right? 
We want to help. We're in support. It's a heart. We want to help women on IVF and abortion because those are two areas we where we are actually circling the drain in terms of political support. Uh, no for idea a, what no idea doing. what he's doing. Completely, so completely incoherent. But, you know, it's amazing because in Alabama, for example, if you go back, part of the holding in the Supreme Court case was about um arrested on the fact that Alabama voters had basically voted personhood into the Constitution, right? If you go back and you look in 2018, the ACLU and Planned Parenthood was saying this is going to have consequences, not just for abortion, but for miscarriage care and other reproductive health care. Like, this is not a big surprise to anybody who's been paying attention. It's maybe a big surprise to them that they're paying the political price. But everybody who has been even remotely paying attention to this realizes the broad scope of reproductive control that they're actually talking about. The only reason they're backtracking is because they're getting in trouble for it right yeah. now. Yeah. Well, it also seems like all the tweets of uh, support for IVF are going to amount to hill of beans. I mean, I don't. Do you have any expectation that any kind of legislative solve is on the horizon? Well, in Alabama, yes, they have this totally incoherent thing that will allow them to say that there's a legislative fix. But even if it were an effective legislative fix, you still are going to run up against these, frankly, theocrats on the Alabama State Supreme Court who made it very clear there was really only one dissent in that case, which made many logical points. Everybody else, the only question is, what was their reasoning in order to say that these embryos are extrauterine children who deserve protection under the wrongful death of a minor act of 1872, a time in which I think IVF was not yet contemplated? Oh, good old 1872. It dominates so much of our politics the 19th century. Erin Carmone, thank you, my friend, for your time and great reporting. Great to see you. Still ahead tonight, two weeks after his death in a Russian penal colony, thousands of Russians lined the streets today to lay Alexei Navalny to rest and to continue his work. That's next. For a while, it was not even clear there would be a funeral at all. After Russian opposition, opposition leader Alexei Navalny died in mid-February in an Arctic penal colony, Russian authorities at first refused to even release his body. The government reportedly threatened that it would bury Navalny at the prison unless his mother agreed to hold a small, quiet, private funeral. Once Navalny's body was finally released, his allies then said the Russian government was thwarting their attempts to plan a funeral. They could not find a venue willing to host a memorial service or even a hearse willing to carry Navalny's body. And once they finally found a church and a cemetery where they could hold a funeral and bury Navalny yesterday, the Kremlin denied them permission because it might distract from the big saber-rattling speech President Putin had planned that day. There was also the question of whether, even if a funeral was eventually held for Alexei Navalny, anyone would dare to even come. After Navalny's death, Russian police arrested more than 400 people just for laying flowers at makeshift memorials across the country. Anyone turning up for an actual memorial for Navalny would be putting themselves at risk of arrest or violence, all of which made it absolutely stunning when this morning, as Navalny's family and friends were finally able to hold a funeral in Moscow, mourners did show up, thousands of them. Despite a heavy, heavy police presence, thousands of Russians lined the streets outside the church, each and every one of them risking their safety and their freedom just to be there. The crowd could be heard chanting defiant things, things almost never heard in Russia today, like Russia will be free, we won't give up, and we won't forgive. But mostly they just chanted Navalny's name over and over, 
as in this footage posted by Navalny allies from a rooftop overlooking the crowds. The vast majority of mourners were kept out of the church by police barricades inside the church. And I should warn you that the footage we're about to show includes an open casket inside the church. There was a small brief ceremony. Alexei Navalny's parents can be seen seated in front beside their son's coffin. When Navalny's mother emerged from the church, some mourners in the crowd shouted to her to thank her for her son. In an interview before he was imprisoned, Alexei Navalny said, if they decide to kill me, it means that we are incredibly strong. You're not allowed to give up. Those thousands of people who showed up today, despite the risks, they are not giving up. And that has to count for something. That's our show for tonight. For a while, it was not even clear there would be a funeral at all. After Russian opposition, opposition leader Alexei Navalny died in mid-February in an Arctic penal colony, Russian authorities at first refused to even release his body. The government reportedly threatened that it would bury Navalny at the prison unless his mother agreed to hold a small, quiet, private funeral. Once Navalny's body was finally released, his allies then said the Russian government was thwarting their attempts to plan a funeral. They could not find a venue willing to host a memorial service or even a hearse willing to carry Navalny's body. And once they finally found a church and a cemetery where they could hold a funeral and bury Navalny yesterday, the Kremlin denied them permission because it might distract from the big saber-rattling speech President Putin had planned that day. There was also the question of whether, even if a funeral was eventually held for Alexei Navalny, anyone would dare to even come. After Navalny's death, Russian police arrested more than 400 people just for laying flowers at makeshift memorials across the country. Anyone turning up for an actual memorial for Navalny would be putting themselves at risk of arrest or violence. All of which made it absolutely stunning when this morning, as Navalny's family and friends were finally able to hold a funeral in Moscow, mourners did show up. Thousands of them. Despite a heavy, heavy police presence, thousands of Russians lined the streets outside the church, each and every one of them risking their safety and their freedom just to be there. The crowd could be heard chanting defiant things, things almost never heard in Russia today, like, Russia will be free, we won't give up, and we won't forgive. But mostly they just chanted Navalny's name over and over as in this footage posted by Navalny allies from a rooftop overlooking the crowds. The vast majority of mourners were kept out of the church by police barricades inside the church. And I should warn you that the footage we're about to show includes an open casket. Inside the church, there was a small brief ceremony. Alexei Navalny's parents can be seen seated in front beside their son's coffin. When Navalny's mother emerged from the church, some mourners in the crowd shouted to her to thank her for her son. In an interview before he was imprisoned, Alexei Navalny said, if they decide to kill me, it means that we are incredibly strong. You're not allowed to give up. Those thousands of people who showed up today, despite the risks, they are not giving up. And that has to count for something.
That's our show for tonight. Now it's time for the last word with Ali Velshi in for Lawrence. Good evening, Ali. Uh, I, I appreciate everything. It was a fantastic show, highly distracting for me trying to prepare for this show. But the points you just made about Alexei Navalny and Russia would be important just in another country. But to imagine that in a country that does not enjoy democracy, these protesters came out or whatever, funeral attendees, if you want to call them, came out and risked their safety and security to protest for democracy is a remarkable lesson for us here in America yeah, about what's it, going on. It is a really, we felt it was a really important note to yes. end the week on because I know it's been a tough week for people and it sometimes yes. feels like the system isn't working, but it's really important to keep that that struggle in mind. Thank you for doing that. We're going to pick up exactly where you left off. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. Have a week. good show. Russia without Putin. That was also one of the chants shouted by the thousands. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost.